All right, HCC, how you doing today? <clears throat> Man, it's so good to see you, so good to be with you as we kick off a brand new month and yet wind down a series that we've been in for the last five weeks. So glad that you're here with us. I want to welcome you here in Powell Auditorium here at Victorville. For those of you that are joining us online, a big welcome to you as well. Thanks for joining us tonight. So as we continue, uh, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you haven't been with us for a few weeks. We've been in a series called Handle with Care. We've been talking about God's design for our sexuality. And in it, we have been processing a lot of things, trying to become very familiar with his design so that we would know anything else would be a counterfeit. And we've walked through three, te- three weeks, weekends of teaching on things related to God's design for sexuality, for sex, all those things. And then last week, if you were here with us or maybe watched online, we uh, had a great interview <clears throat> with one of our HTC own, Heather Dodge, sharing a story, her story, of how she'd been sexually assaulted and yet what God redeemed in so many ways through that experience in her own life, in her son's life, and uh, just grateful for uh, just her willingness to come and share that story. One thing that we've done is we've asked you to take a survey for us on our series. And as those questions have come in, they've been really just so significant. Really grateful to those who took the time to do that for us and just gave us some responses as well as questions you've had about the series. And within that, a lot of those uh, questions were about things related to marriage, uh, not just things in general about my own personhood or things in general about sexuality, but in our marriage or in my marriage that I was in, I'm now divorced, whatever the issues. And what I wanted to tell you was, I'm really glad that we're going to be able to finish this last week of the series on this topic. And I was thinking back as we've gone through this series from the very beginning, we saw literally in the second chapter of your Bible in Genesis 2, God bringing a man and a woman together and in this union, um, having this covenant of lifelong connection, lifelong oneness in Genesis 2. We see that really that perfect. So if, you, if you think about marriage ever since then, nobody's had a perfect marriage and every married person would tell you that, but there really was one in the garden, very, very much that essence until the fall that we read about in Genesis 3. Over the course of time, God has this unique relationship with his people, Israel. And what's fascinating is, is that when he talks about his relationship to them, he constantly uses the imagery of a husband to a wife. And he talks about Israel as his wife being unfaithful to him and continuing to fail to remain committed and in that covenant relationship, though God says, I remain committed to you. And so that's a powerful imagery of marriage, even throughout the Old Testament, related to Yahweh's relationship with his people. And that brings us to this powerful picture in the new, in Ephesians chapter five, related to what God's design for marriage is, but wildly, and I hope, I, I hope we seeded this enough throughout the series, but if not, you're at least hearing it today, your marriage isn't primarily for you. But your marriage is reflecting, whether well or not, the relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. 
Ephesians chapter five, verse 22 says, wives submit to your husbands, uh, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ says the church, for we are members of his body. And then it quotes Genesis 2, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is the thing I wanted you to hear tonight. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the, and the wife must respect her husband. So all throughout scripture, there is a lot of conversation about marriage, its significance, its meaning. And so we wrap up our series about sexuality by talking to one of our own couples, Robbie and Brenda Briselli. And they're gonna share with you the challenges that they've faced in their marriage. But what I want you to listen for is just like last week, I want you to listen to what God has redeemed and what he keeps redeeming in their marriage today. They have not only seen God do amazing things through them and in them, but as they have been able to minister to other couples, you'll hear more about that before we're done today. You're really gonna appreciate Robbie and Brenda. So would you welcome them out today? All right. Good to see you guys. Come on, take a seat. Okay. Um, some of you have interacted with Robbie and Brenda in all kinds of ways. You guys have been a part of our church here at HCC for a long time. So they might be at least friendly faces, if not people you've had more of a connection and relationship with. Robbie and Brenda, we're going to dive into your story. And as we do, though, maybe catch us up rather before we go back, catch us up to present. Tell us a little bit about your marriage. Tell us about how many kids, grandkids, where are you guys at? Well, Brenda and I have been, mar have been married for 31 years. Uh, we've been together for 32 years. Uh, together, we have five kids, uh, one boy and four girls. Uh, our youngest is 21. Yeah, I'll try to get it right. Our oldest is 32. Uh, our son is in the military, and he's uh, stationed in Washington right now. And we have eight wonderful grandkids uh, from ages 1 to 15. That's awesome. Very, very cool. And that's exciting to hear about even just your guys' marriage and three-plus decades now, along with those kids and grandkids. Um, and trick question, how many years at HDC? I forgot to ask you that. Since 2009. Nine, so like 14. Uh, 14 years. Yeah, okay, perfect. Just keeping you on your toes. You're great. You're like, our, our kids went before we did. They okay. actually brought us here. That's so, awesome. Yeah. It's a great story. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's, let's do this. As we talk about those 31 years in marriage, 
there's obviously more to every story than just when we said I do. So let's back it up to even back to growing up. Tell us a little bit about families of origin and some of the issues that you faced then that would definitely, like all of us, play out later in our lives. Um, so I am the youngest of six children. Um, we all share the same parents. Uh, I was born in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, and I lived there till I was about eight years old. Um, my siblings, I had three of my siblings struggle with uh, um, drug and alcohol addiction, some both and, and some just one, but the mix. And then I, we later learned that one of my sisters, we feel now she probably struggled with a sexual addiction. Uh, looking back at my parents' childhood, just because it plays a big role in my life, my mom was the youngest of 11 children, raised by a single mom who was also an orphan. Uh, and my dad was raised by his divorced parents, but he was very abused by his father, um, verbally and mentally. And later we, we think that he, or we learned that my grandfather actually molested several of my um, of his grandchildren, so we're not sure. My dad's disposition kind of showed a little bit of that behavior, that he would be uh, molested probably as well, just by how he, he, he acted around us. Um, let's see, my, we lived in Arizona until I was about eight years old, uh, and we moved from there to California when my dad became disabled from my uncle, who brutally attacked him and left him disabled so he wasn't able to work anymore. Uh, so we came back to, we came to California for various reasons. Uh, my, I grew up with a lot of brokenness and dysfunction in my family. There was never really any uh, physical touch, healthy or unhealthy. Uh, my mom, I do remember some times when my mom would cuddle me once in a while, and they always would say they loved me, but there was never that physical touch, so I didn't really learn that uh, too much. My dad, um, this is when I get a little emotional. <laughs> my dad, I never remember my dad hugging me, not even one time in my life. Um, and I, I don't know why I think, because maybe he was molested and maybe he didn't know what healthy touch was. So uh, I don't, I never received one hug from my father and I still long for that today. I still long for that healthy physical touch from my father. Um, he passed away in 1999. Uh, so I won't get that here on earth, but I'm praying that I'll get that in heaven one day. Um, my mom and dad were we, were, we were, we grew up very poor, but we shouldn't have had to grow up very poor because my mom and dad, um, they made okay money, but they had addiction problems. My mom was a heavy gambler. She was a enabler. She was codependent. And I seemed to pick up those traits too. And so that's why I met Robbie and decided I can save him. Uh, my dad was a severe alcoholic. That was his breakfast all the way to dinner time. And so they, they just, their dysfunction worked well together, but not for their family. Uh, as I became older in my teen years, I remember be starting to get really angry at my father uh, for his alcoholism. And I vowed that I would never uh, marry an addict in my life. <laughs> Little did I know that uh, problematic sexual behavior is a demon in itself and uh, it is a perfect fit for somebody like me that's looking for love and attention. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. Robbie, catch us up. So I was born in a country called Suriname in South America. We migrated to the United States when I was about 10 years old. I have a full sister and two half-siblings. 
they are from affairs from my dad, uh, from two different affairs. Uh, my grandparents, my grandfather, when my dad was an infant, my grandfather, my dad's side, was killed in a bar fight over a woman he was flirting with. My grandfather was about 21 years old at that time. Uh, my other grandfather uh, died when he turned surgery on his back when my mom was 12. My dad was raised by a very abusive stepdad, and he left home when he was about 14. So there was never really any nurture or love from my dad. Um, my mother, my mom, her, she was also raised by a stepdad after her dad left, but she doesn't never really talked about that. Um, my brother was the same age as me, my half-brother, and he died of chronic alcoholism about a year or so ago. Um, try to think it all. That's about it. Yeah. I think that's, that's about it. So when you think about, as you're going to hear Robbie and Brenda share their story, one of the things we've had great conversations about <clears throat> have just been the things that are, and I appreciate even both of them going back into their parents' stories, because what we just see is, is that we don't just come out of a vacuum. There is a, a context in all of our lives. We've all been born into some sort of family, some sort of situation. And what you're gonna hear as we walk this through, that while those things might at first be very much our world, the only things we know, they don't have to be the things that ultimately and always define us. And that's what I'm excited about as we walk through. But they were sure significant, especially when you guys met. Let's walk to that part, kind of catch us up. What were the circumstances of when you guys met? Uh, when I was 17, I kind of got a taste of going out and partying and just living the life. Um, I was often hanging out with people older than me. I... Uh, I remember faking my age, and I just was longing to find that true love in a way that I thought love was, you know, supposed to be. Um, every time I would finally think that I found that true love, um, reality would hit, and they would get what they want, and they would pretty much dump me. And then when I was 19 years old, I found myself pregnant by a gentleman that I would never be able to share with him that I was pregnant because he... He left, he left before I could tell him, and I had no way of contacting him. Um, I felt a, a season of brokenness, sadness. I felt, you know, that limbic feeling that goes on in my head over and over that uh, I'm just not good enough, and I'm, and I'm broken. Um, and so after that, I just had no intentions of, of being with anyone. I didn't want any relationship. I vowed it was going to be me and my daughter, and we were going to make it just fine. And then I got, I was seven months pregnant and I had, I, my friend invited me to go over to her house where her boyfriend and his friend was and she wanted me to meet his, his friend. And I really had no intentions, but I went over there and visited. It was my best friend's house. So I went and visited and I went and um, hung out for a while. I didn't have any interest in Robbie, but I think Robbie, he was pursuing me, but I didn't, I didn't pay attention to that because I was focused. Um, and then he continued to pursue me and we went back, I went back again to visit, him, uh, visit my friend. And he was continually pursuing me. And in my mind, I was thinking, wow, this guy isn't leaving. He's actually pursuing me and not leaving like all the other guys. So he, he must want me. He must be the guy that is meant to be with me. How about from your perspective, Robbie? 
as Brenda said, um, I met her at a friend's house. Uh, I was in the Army at the time and I stationed at Fort Irwin. And I just arrived uh, in California. When I met Brenda, I had a girlfriend and I actually had a baby on the way as well. Um, I asked her to move out here and she refused. She wanted to stay with her family in New Jersey. And looking back, I felt really rejected. And when I met Brenda, I found somebody I could have a conversation with, someone I can just hang around with, and someone that felt like family. Being away from home, as dysfunctional as my family was, it was still a family. And just being alone, not having that family feeling, that family dynamic, uh, having someone like Brenda where I felt I can, felt like I had a family. Uh, so I pursued her. Um, unfortunately, as Brenda and I got closer, um, I end up manipulating both Brenda and my girlfriend because I did not cut off the relationship with her. And that eventually led to me uh, having an affair on Brenda. So we kind of start this relationship. There's a deep need and desire to be connected. There's also a deep need. I'm away from everything I've known. I'm 3,000 miles away. So there's a real mutual neediness. And in that, a thing that you find in each other, like, hey, this is a, this is a neat thing. We have a neat connection. And as that kind of moves forward, what I think often happens in a lot of our minds is that we think there's not only an interest, but we're dating and maybe we're even gonna get married. But in marriage, that's gonna make everything better. Like if we just can get married, if we can just make it to getting married, then all these problems that we have, they're gonna be less at least, potentially even go away. It's not true in your marriage. It's not true in any of theirs either, but it's what we tend to think sometimes. So how did that play out for you guys? Yeah, that's true. Um, we, I was, we were one year into our relationship and I was now pregnant with Robbie's ch first child, or child, my first child with Robbie. Um, we had an opportunity to go to Delaware and visit his parents. It would be me visiting his parents for the first time, and he would actually be able to meet his new daughter of five months for the first time. Um, we, it, we were really excited. He went, we went and saw his baby for the first time. We were able to take her out and visit with the baby and just have a good time. And when he arrived to return the baby back, um, he came out and told me, I wasn't allowed in the house, but he came back and told me that we, were no long, or we weren't allowed to take the baby out anymore, that he was still going to visit the baby, and um, I um, wasn't, wasn't welcome in the house. I don't know who made that rule, if it was the ex or if it was him, but I wasn't allowed there. So fast forward to the next time he was going to visit his child, um, I, me and my daughter of nine months old, uh, we were dropped off at a mall parking lot, and we were left there for a few hours to wait for him to go and visit his uh, ex. I was very sad. I was 2,000 miles away from home. I had no idea where, I, I've never left California, so now I'm in this crazy new place. Um, I, w I felt completely abandoned, completely alone, and devastated. Um, and I would wait there for three hours until Robbie would go and visit his his ex, and I knew in my heart what was going on, but my, my desire to be loved was so strong that I was willing to just do whatever. Uh, it was about three hours later, he had picked me up, and at that point I was irate. I was so heartbroken and hurt. Uh, I got in the car, and I remember Robbie had no expression whatsoever on his face. He, he couldn't show empathy. He knew I was hurting, I was, I was livid. <laughs> 
I was so mad and filled with so much pain. I remember I had these new perfect artificial nails on that everybody gets when they go on vacation, nice acrylic, and I just remember ripping every one of those nails off my nail bed with no hesitation. Um, That's how much pain I was in. I just, it didn't matter. Uh, He had no empathy, and now I know he he didn't know empathy because it wasn't ever mirrored to him as a child, so he couldn't learn empathy if he was, if it was never mirrored. It's a mirrored behavior. Um, so then Robbie had a way of, of taking things and um, giving, giving me flowers or suggesting things uh, whenever he would try to say sorry. So Robbie's suggestion to me was that maybe when we fly home, we should get married. And that was it. That's all I needed to know. Like, life, life was good now. I forgive him. You know, I'm the one that won. I'm the one that won this man. I'm the one that was important. I'm the, the worthy one. And so that fixed everything in my mind because that's how much I just wanted to be loved. Um, so we were to fly home on the 4th of January, 1992. But on the 3rd, he uh, decided he was going to go out with a group of friends. That's where he was raised in Delaware. So his friends were there. He was going to go out with a group of friends, and he was going to have his, his sort of bachelor party. Um, coming home about one in the morning or to the, his parents' home where we were staying, uh, Robbie, I could just, my instinct knew it. And ladies, we have instincts. Don't confuse it with what your, your mind wants to tell you. We have gut instincts. Um, he came, came home, and I, and I questioned it, but of course it was shut down as you're crazy, that's not really true, that's not happening, I didn't do anything wrong. And in my mind, even though I knew it, I, I made myself just think, yep, I'm crazy, like, it's, it's true, it's just me. Um, but then, after, as I was watching him sleep, I, can, I, I knew that there, was, there were physical signs on him that was telling my gut st- instinct that it was spot on, but still, when you go through that cycle of being told, like, that's not true, you're crazy, um, you start to believe it. And it's actually becomes a little bit easier to believe that because then you, you can, um, you know, believe that this person really does love and care for you. And you're, you know, now you just got to fix yourself. So, um, so yeah, then we flew home and and got married the next day. Um, we shoved it under the rug and, and that was that. After we got married, um, my problematic sexual behavior was seemed to be under control for a little bit. But as being newly married, having kids, trying to navigate those challenges, my coping mechanism, which is sexual behavior, started creeping back in. First it was the porn, and then eventually that led to uh, more affairs. My life was totally out of control. Uh, the anger got, and I'm not one that displays anger. I internalize it um, the more I needed to cope, the more I needed to find a way to escape reality. And so it porn and then eventually again, the affairs. Uh, Now I realize what that was all about. It wasn't about the sex. It was just about having my brain escape where I'm at, escape reality, uh, called the thrill of the chase. Basically, you're just releasing endorphins, adrenaline. It's like cops going on a chase. You, You get that high from that. Um, as my pornography never stayed the same, it always kept getting worse as you continue to look for something else. And that's one of the big dangers of pornography is whether you watch it alone or watch it as a couple, it never stays the same. It just continues to grab and dig its claws into you. 
And can I add on that yeah, a little bit? please. So um, after we were married, I truly believed that, you know, all of our problems would go away, that everything would fit, be fixed. You know, I was the one that won him. But reality is that we weren't really doing anything different from when we were living in sin and when we were married other than we, we got married. Um, deceit continued. His porn continued. Um, he fell deeper and deeper into sexual immorality. Uh, if I did express my emotions finally, I would get so worked up and so stressed out that I thought if I say anything, he would leave me, then I would, I would quickly fix it. Um, if I said something, I would back it up and, and fix it because I was so worried that Robbie would, would, uh, would leave me. And so he was spiraling out of control in addiction, and I was spiraling, spiraling out of control being addicted to my husband. So... It's powerful. It's a, yeah. When we think about things that become those idols in our lives, right? We can point to things often that, that do take the form of addictions that are outside of ourselves, outside of relationships. But how often is, it seems rare that we can connect that dot, that it actually could be a person that I've made into that small G God in yeah. my life and everything is about trying to keep that, right? Absolutely. There's a host of reasons why when we think about brokenness and how it continues to kind of leak out in not just our own lives, but into our marriages, into our families. When you think about that for you guys, things were, were, were rough. Marriage in no way was the fix. And that's obvious to what you shared. But it, when you think about these steps and as they continued to go down, would you say that there was a point at which you began to go, man, I don't know if the, I'm hoping it's going to get better. It doesn't look like it is. What do we do? What did that kind of lead you to? Yeah. So uh, when we, when you grow your whole life with brokenness and dysfunction, you don't realize the pull that it has on you. And you don't realize like the things that you take from your dysfunction into your marriage. Um, I don't blame my parents for how I was raised and the dysfunction that I learned because I'm sure that in their mind they thought that they were raising me better than they were taught. Um, so I don't blame them. Um, I actually learned a lot from them because that's who I am today. But um, I still vowed to do things different with my husband and children. Um, the generational curses, they, they continued in our life. Um, and my, my desire to be chosen and loved was super strong still. Um, I got to a point where I'd do anything that I could to save my marriage and save my husband. Um, I was willing to go to the place of destruction um, that, that my body, to my body and a place that I despised the most. Um, and I didn't understand the cost at the time of what I was doing, but, um, but I was destroying our lives really. And I had gone to a place where I became a partner in watching porn with my husband. Um, I led him to the thing that was ripping me physically to pieces, but my desire to be loved by my husband was so strong that I was willing to do that. And during that time, uh, Robbie and I had gone to church and we had accepted Christ. Uh, and we were going to the Nazarene church and we accepted Christ at that time. So sin felt deeper to me. Sin felt more personal. Um, sin felt like you knew it was wrong. At, you know, you were doing it and it was wrong. Um, and, and at that time, I, I went into a very deep depression, and um, I was just disgusted in myself. I was disgusted in how things were turning out, and a host of other reasons. But and at that time, that that's when I decided I was going to attempt suicide. 
as I try to introduce my uh, pornography into our marriage, uh, it didn't last. As Brenda wasn't comfortable with it, and as she expressed, she tried to commit suicide in, ex in, in her life. That was a wake-up call for me. Um, we needed help. We needed something. So we did some counseling sessions. Uh, we started going to church, as Brenda said, and things seemed to be a little bit better. I knew about Christ. In Suriname, there were some missionaries that I would go to on Sundays. My parents, my dad doesn't believe, didn't believe at that time in God and Christ. Now he does, thankfully. Uh, but my mom grew up Muslim. I think they just allowed me to go just to get rid of me for a few hours. So I knew of Christ. I just never really had accepted him. And as we accepted Christ, I never, I surrendered, but I never trusted. And I knew that now, no, now, that was one of my deep wounds that I needed to deal with is I didn't really trust anyone. Uh, one of my family rules was we didn't really talk about what happened in the family. What happens in a family stays in a family. And I learned that at an early age. Uh, I remember one time my parents, they argued all the time uh, about my dad's affairs. And one time they were arguing and I went to play at a friend's house to get away from all the argument and I was upset. And the, my friend's dad saw that I was upset and asked what was wrong. And when I told him, he called my parents and told them what I said. And when I got home, I got in trouble. I learned... You don't talk about what happens in this family, whether good or bad. It's no one else's business. So I never I learned we don't reach out for help when things are bad. Um, so as we were going to church, things got a little bit better. Uh, our kids were in Bible camp and, and Bible competitions, and they were doing good. But as we, life started getting happening again, we slowly stopped going to church. And eventually, uh, my problematic sexual behavior start creeping back in. As life got hard, as I needed to cope, uh, my old coping mechanism came back in and that led back to the porn and then eventually back to having another affair. So Brenda, for you, what was the point when you finally said, I can't keep doing this? There, there have been all these different breaks of trust for so long, but there was one that you just finally said, I can't, I can't keep going. Um, as we went deeper into our marriage, more affairs would happen, more, Robbie was isolating more. Uh, he was hanging out with friends more, so I knew, you know, it wasn't his normal. Um, more deception happened, a long-term affair with a stripper happened. Uh, I found that out later, but this was during that time when he was distant. And during that time, ownership definitely didn't happen. Uh, there were times when we would find porn on our TV and he would go as far as blaming one of our children for it. Uh, he, nothing was his fault. And his, his addiction was beginning to really get out of control. I mean, it was already out of control, but now we are spiraling. So ground zero happened when I finally witnessed with my own eyes that Robbie was continuing uh, to attempt physical sexual activities with another female. And it was a time when I said, enough is enough. I cannot do this anymore. And when you see it with your own eyes, it's, it's a whole different ball game. Um, I don't know, for me, it was so easy to, to know stuff was happening, but not see it. And I can just shove it under a rug or, or put it away and, you know, make my mind think that, you know, he's doing better. But when you see it with your own eyes, it's just, it's crazy to believe that, that it's hard to believe that you can just shove it away. Um, I had that mindset, if you don't see it, it's not real. And reality is facing it is really, really hard. It's really hard to face it. It's really hard to approach your spouse about it. Um, but that's also the time when you're allowing God to kind of get in there and work for you. 
Um, God saw my pain. He heard my cries for truth. Uh, he allowed me to actually, he allowed that moment to be presented to me so I wasn't second guessing myself. So I wasn't um, thinking I was crazy or, or, you know, in my mind, yeah, I just, I was crazy. <laughs> Uh, nothing could be questioned. Truth wasn't right in front of my eyes. And when a wife discovers that, or even a husband, you know, in my, in my story, it's me. So, but when you discover that and you've been betrayed, everything that you know is good is now distorted. And so God gave me truth then, and he told me that I'm good and I was enough. Um, and I couldn't do this unhealthy dance anymore. I couldn't do my kid, do it to my kids. I didn't want my son thinking that this was a trait that was a good trait. And I didn't want my daughters thinking that this was acceptable behavior. And even though Rob's choices were of his own, um, I don't take ownership for that. I definitely played a role uh, without holding boundaries and without giving consequences to him. And so I finally had to stand up and it was the scariest thing in my life that I did, but I had to stand up to him and I had to tell him enough is enough. And I didn't know how I was gonna fix it. I didn't know how I was going to you know, survive. I didn't know what I was doing with our, with our home, um, but I had to fix me and he had to fix him. And I just remember at that time crying to God and telling him like, I can't fix this. I can't do it anymore. I cannot fix this man it's pointless, I'm putting him in your hands and you're gonna take care of him. And the problem with that whole statement was I was saying, I can't fix him. But God was telling me, get out of the way so I can fix him. <laughs> so uh, that's what I did. And then God started doing work in our lives. And, and later, you know, when he, that was the first time God really spoke to me. Um, and little did I know that God was telling me, get out of the way and I'm gonna fix him and I'm gonna renew this marriage and I'm gonna renew it to, so you can help other couples. So, March 9, 2009, Brenda kicked me out of the house. She's had enough. She found out about another affair. And as I left, I grabbed a change of clothes for work, uh, some toiletries, and my life insurance policy to make sure it covers suicide. And as I read my policy and realized it did cover suicide, um, I sat there in the middle of a desert. I had just driven my truck out in the middle of the desert, not even sure where I was at, but all I know is it was just dark. It was out there and no one can find me or bother me. And I was trying to, I was contemplating how to do it the easiest way because I am a coward. I didn't want any pain, I just wanted to be over. I didn't know where else to do. And I heard this distinct voice said to hold on. And as I heard that voice, I sat there and I felt a weight just lifted off my shoulders. I didn't know until years later that at that same moment, Brenda was praying for me, for God to fix me. And God got a hold of me and said, Hold on. And as I sat there, I waited for the sun to come up. And as the sun came up, I felt that warmth and I dedicated my life to Christ. You see, I dedicated my life to Christ probably a hundred times, but I must've been doing it wrong because I still kept struggling within my problematic sexual behavior. But this time as I dedicated my life to him, as I resurrendered, I surrendered my life, but I also trusted him. I didn't Trusted it. I trusted him with my marriage. I trusted him with my family. I trusted him with my life. I didn't care what happened, if it meant a divorce, if it meant me moving, changing jobs. I was okay with it because I knew it was going to be his will at that moment. That's powerful. So you guys really had, within hours of each other, these kind of, you know, level one moments of just bringing everything down to the studs of commitment and not even together 
just going, I've, I've had it, this can't keep going on. And Ravi going, I'm finally ready, you know, to go, God, whatever you want, I just need change. Now, in that moment of the things God was doing in your lives, he also brought some really significant people into your life alongside of you. Tell us about them. Um, before I even go there, I just want to mention real quick, you know, when I came to God, it was really hard for me. Um, I had forgot to mention that I grew up in a Catholic um, background and everything that was taught to me as far as religion was very scary. Um, my mom was very spiritually abusive, so coming to God was a, a big deal too. Um, and so this was very new, you know, leaving my husband, really giving my life to Christ and saying, and giving my husband's life to Christ, it was very hard. But this journey, it takes a lot of work. It, it's not a microwave fix. You have to, you have to work hard at it. Um, the couples that do, do um, put that effort and that work into it, they come out so successful. It's just amazing to watch. But um, we never would have made it without the sweet, unconditional love of God. And it took a very broken, he took a very broken, broken couple. And he created a masterpiece, really, in his eyes. Um, after Rob left home, he started therapy. And he started joining the Men's Pure Life group. Um, I went, he, he asked me if I would join the women's support group. And I was so mad that he even asked me that question in my mind. I was like, why am I going to this group to fix, to fix me or to fix you? Um, you know, you're the one that screwed up. You're the one that did this. I don't need to fix myself. I don't need to go to this group. Um, it was, to me, it was nonsense, but I wanted to do whatever I could to save my marriage. And I did agree to it. Um, when I went there, it was totally different than what I thought. It was a place where I can go to fix me. It was, there was a sense of sisterhood there. There was a wonderful leader she used to lead. Um, she was just wonderful. She welcomed me into her home. Uh, she knew everything I was going to. Uh, they didn't judge me or try to fix me. They didn't advise me, but they listened to me um, instead of you know telling me what I need to do. Uh, they prayed with me. They prayed over me. Uh, I didn't have to shove my feelings for the first time away. I could actually feel. And we walked through a study, and I learned about different stages of grief and how I can work through those. We learned it's okay to have boundaries and apply them, and now I know that even Jesus had boundaries. Uh, I learned that I have wounds to work through. Uh, I learned that I carried some of those wounds from my, from my home, my uh, family of origin. And I learned that I have distorted thoughts of myself, but that's not who God says I am. Um, I learned a sweet, deeper love of Jesus and how he'll take my, my broken pieces and just create something so magnificent. Um, I also learned that just because I'm broken doesn't mean that I'm too broken for God. And it doesn't mean that my husband's too damaged for God. Uh, we're not less important to God. Uh, nor is my, my husband is not less important to God just because, you know, he's walked through a, you know, a bad place. Um, I don't know. He just, he created beauty for our ashes or beauty for our ashes. And I'm just thankful we needed God as our first counselor. And we finally let him do that. I knew I needed help as, as I, the next day, as I went to work, something was different. I knew I needed help. So I started counseling and where my counselor was, there was this group from High Desert Church that used to meet there on Tuesday nights. And it was called the Pure Man's Life Group. So I joined the group. And within the group, I found a bunch of men, just like me, that were struggling, trying to figure out what was going on in their lives. 
but no one was judging anyone. But there was also a group of men that have walked through this challenge and were healthy and came out the other side with Christ by their side. Because Christ, as the head of their household, walk in life in purity. So I knew there was hope. I knew there was help. I dug in to my counseling. I dug into my pure life group. And I dug into whatever I could find. But the one thing I also dug into was my Bible. I actually not just skimmed over it, but actually read it. And as I was reading it, I realized God had given me a prophetic promise when he told me to hold on. It wasn't me just holding on to get by. It was me for hold on to him as he was going to carry me and make sure I was doing the right thing. Uh, we, started joined, we started attending High Desert Church in 2009, um, and we're still here, uh, thankfully. And then after six months of being in pure life, I became part of the leadership, and I still am today. That's so great. So 14 years ago, God, really, there was this breakthrough that was starting. There was, like you said, Brenda, a lot of work. Like you said, Robbie, a lot of time with counselors, a lot of time with pure life. But the idea is that was that turning point. And we look back on almost the last 15 years come January, where we'll go, man, God, look at the things that not only God is healing and restoring in your marriage, but the way he's using you in so many significant ways in other people's lives and other marriages. If you could just summarize in closing, what would be something you'd say today to a couple who's maybe at a place when you back up 14 and a half years ago or whatever in that window and you just go, what would you say to you at that time? Okay, um, well, first, I think if somebody said, would I do it again, I probably would. And it's because my marriage is, it's a renewed marriage. It's not restored. It's an absolute, it's, it's amazing. Um, when we, uh, there, we joined, well, I joined 2009 as well, um, but there are so many couples facing this situation right now, and so many uh, couples are afraid to just stand up and say, we need help. Uh, I believe mostly because it's fear of being judged and it's, or shamed or maybe even exposed. Um, nobody wants to spend, um, you know, time admitting that they have a struggle, especially one like this. Uh, the thought of what will they think of me or my spouse is always something that always goes into play. Um, I've said for years now that we're sick of our secrets and the ladies in the room that go to my group know I say that. Uh, and so I refuse to stuff my stuff anymore. Um, God will use our struggles if you let him in. I hid my husband's stuff for so long that we fell really ill to it. Um, the surface problem is sexual sin, but there's a deeper rooted problem that has to do with you know, wounds that you've gone through, traumas or, you know, things that you've gone through when you were younger. Um, it's a way of medicating those, that brokenness. But there is help, and there's a group of ladies that will help for the ladies that need that spouse support group uh, for husbands who are struggling. Uh, you don't have to be in, in the group. Uh, the men don't have to be in the group for the ladies to come to the group. Uh, we're not there to judge you or make decisions for you. We're there to help you walk through this time with you. Uh, we often get outside advice from, from people that really love us and really wanna tell us how to fix our marriage. And sometimes that could be a very dangerous thing. Um, everybody that loves you always wants to tell you what to do and how to do things right. Uh, one of the most, the wor that's one of the worst things probably that you can hear right now, but you need a place that you can go and learn about you, learn about why you do what, do what you do and how um, you got to this place how, our, how your family of rules 
and roles, whether they're good or bad, how they play a part in your marriage, how traumas play a part in your marriage and your life, and also how to create boundaries with grace. There's um, you know, a lot of us that struggle with this. We don't know how to have boundaries. We're too, we're too afraid that, that we'll be left or, or you know, we're, we're worried that we're not good enough, so we're willing to take the hit, and it's not, it's not, it's not good. Um, we learn how to forgive when you're ready, because forgiveness is a big thing, and it is there, especially if the husband wants to really work at this. Uh, we learn how to just let God lead our marriage, and there are so many ladies that, sh- that are struggling that don't realize that there is that help and support. So we've been through it, so we know how we can help you, and that's why we can't judge you, because we've been there too. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. This, is a, uh, this, is, this subject is really hard for a spouse or somebody who's addicted to just do this journey alone. You have to have those people by your side. You have to have your team. And God really, really wants to use your story through it too. So sexual sin, it separates us from others. It separates us from God. And the enemy wants, uses that to isolate us. And when we're alone, we're never meant to be alone, never meant to walk life alone. Uh, the world wants to tell us that porn affairs, that's normal. It's okay. But when you're caught in the clutches of sexual sin, we know the pain, the shame, the anger that goes along with it. For those of you that have kids or grandkids, just know that by the time they reach 18 years old, if they have access to the internet, which is just available everywhere, um, they're going to be exposed to this. And if we don't have a conversation with them as a parent or as a grandparent, you're hurting them more than you know. I used to do a survey. I've seen hundreds of men come to a group, and I used to do a survey all the time and see how many men their parents talked to them about sex. And out of hundreds, I can count probably on one hand how many of them did. And it was usually sit them down, this is the birds and bees, and that was it, or watch this movie. There was never a deep talk. And I do think that having a parent in a child's life is one way of defeating this. I heard an interesting way of this being described at a conference once is it's like being in hell with a water pistol trying to put out the fires. But I do believe if we have enough men with water pistols, we're going to do some damage. So having this, and I really want you guys to understand the magnitude of this. Um, it's been shown that porn addiction and crack addiction have the same, do the same type of damage to your brain. And you would never tell someone it's okay to do crack. You would never bring that into your house. So please don't bring this into your house and say, or say, or dismiss this and say, this is just okay. Because it does a lot of damage. And within the men's group, as I said, there's many men that are there that are wanting to help. And within the group, we do not judge. Everyone always asks me why I stick around, why I've been there so long. I, the joy I have is seeing men who walk out, seeing marriages restored. I come to church and I see the men and their wives and their kids, and I knew where they were at, and I know where they're at now, and it's just a joy to me to see that. Thank you. Amen. I'm so grateful, you guys, for... Would you guys thank Robbie and Brenda just for... just so appreciate your vulnerability, appreciate the, the 
redemption you have seen, but even the way you're helping other couples experience that as well is just so rich. You'll notice that your notes again this week are very different than you would normally have. There's verses on the first two pages that are actually from Robbie and Brenda that were verses that were significant and powerful to them as they were walking through the challenges that they were and even ones they claim today that are so helpful as they walk forward. Look on the third page though and you'll note, I love that our comm team did this, is that you'll note again, our resource list, text the word laundry, 64567. But we listed four websites there that are really all super helpful, very, a lot of great tools, a lot of great stories, a lot of great ways to get um, just different kinds of help. And you'll notice a QR code. So you just hover your phone's camera over that, click it, it'll take you to the site. And then on the back page are a couple of books at the top and then also, and this is the thing, if you know anything about Robbie and Brenda's ministries, it is still with Pure Life for Robbie. And you'll note that is mentioned at the top with contact information of how you could begin attending Pure Life. And then below the group that Brenda's been leading for a long time, dealing with sexual betrayal. And you'll notice as well, contact information where you could get in touch with Brenda and find out how could I go to this group to get the support and the encouragement that I need. So that's been our whole goal in this series is we recognize the brokenness that is there. What we wanna do is start putting tools in your hands that can help. And Robbie and Brenda, I just so appreciate you guys for the way that you keep helping people. I wanna close our service by praying and praying for you guys and thanking God for what he keeps doing in your life and pray for our church. Father, thank you uh, for this um, just really powerful time with Robbie and Brenda. We're so grateful for the ways that you brought them to the end of themselves, so close in proximity over years of brokenness and dysfunction, but you were not done. And when you said, hold on, when you reminded Brenda of her great worth to you, these things collided in a, just a powerful change, a transformation at where the headwaters for what we see today. And we're so grateful for their kids, for their grandkids. We're grateful that their marriage is experiencing just a sweet healing that day by day just continues to grow stronger. But thank you, God, for the way that you use Robbie and Brenda beyond their story, the way that you use them as sources of encouragement and help and direction for others that are struggling as well. We're so grateful for their leadership. You may be here today watching online in our service and you would realize God, I need that kind of understanding, that kind of breakthrough, that kind of help that only you can provide. And it might be a, a different list of challenges, but the same problem is inherent. You're a sinner who needs a savior. So would you A, admit that that's the case? Would you B, believe that Jesus, this Jesus that has invaded our world 2000 years ago, he died, he was raised again, he, he lives victorious today. Would you believe that he did all those things for you? And would you see, choose to not just know information, but choose to place your life and surrender at his cross? And I just pray that you would take that step. You don't have to wait another day. Surrender to him and watch him do what he's done in Robbie and Brenda's life in your life today as well. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for who you are. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.